Hey friends, have you been blessed or encouraged or challenged by Theology in the Raw? If so, would you consider joining Theology in the Raw's Patreon community? For as little as five bucks a month, you can gain access to a diverse group of Jesus followers who are committed to thinking deeply, loving widely, and having curious conversations with thoughtful people. We have several membership tiers where we where you can receive premium content. For instance, silver level supporters get to ask and vote on the questions for our monthly Patreon only podcast. They also get to see like written drafts of various projects and books I'm working on. And there's other perks for that tier. Gold level supporters get all of this and access to monthly Zoom chats where we basically blow the doors open on any topic they want to discuss. My patrons play a vital role in nurturing the mission of Theology Nara. And for me, just personally, interacting with my Patreon supporters has become one of the hidden blessings in this podcast ministry. So you can check out all of the info at patreon.com forward slash Theology Nara. That's patreon.com forward slash Theology Nara. You ready for this one? All right. Stanley Hauerwas, everybody. Uh, Stanley was born in 1940 in Dallas, Texas. He received several degrees, including a, a PhD from Yale University. He's been teaching at various schools, including University of Notre Dame and more recently Duke University. The, the Divinity School at Duke University has written tons of books, including Resident Aliens, which he co-authored with uh, William Willimon. Um, the subtitle is A Provocative Christian Assessment of Culture and Ministry for People Who Know That Something Is Wrong. Stanley should need no introduction. I mean, the dude is super well-known. In 2001, Time Magazine named him America's Best Theologian. He responded by saying, best is not a theological category. <laughs> Oh, man, I've been looking forward to this for a while. Um, so, yeah, without further ado, please welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only Dr. Stanley Hauerweiss. Dr. Hauerweiss, thank you so much for making time for this podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation, and I'm really honored you agreed to come on my, my podcast. Let's go back to Dallas, Texas in the 40s and 50s. Who, who was the uh, the young Stanley Hauerweiss? Um, what kind of what kind of uh, kid and teenager were you? A hardworking kid from working class parents who taught me uh, the importance of staying with it. My father was uh, one of six brothers all who were bricklayers. When uh, I was seven or eight, I was taken out to the job uh, to uh, learn how to labor. And I worked aiding bricklayers um, every summer until I was probably 15. My father then taught me how to labor. We went to an evangelical Methodist church where you could uh, uh, join the church on Sunday morning, but you had to be saved on Sunday night. I I thought I wanted to be saved, but I didn't think you should take it. So uh, I uh, Sunday night after Sunday night, I sat there waiting for God to call me to, to do something. Finally, one Sunday night, we were singing, and I surrender off for the 25th time. And so I decided that if I didn't do something, 
uh, we would be there all night. And uh, so I went up and dedicated my life to the Lord. I had no idea what that meant. People assumed it meant I was going into the ministry. We had an associate uh, at that time who had been in the seminary, and he told me I should read books. So I started um, reading a lot of very bad books. And, but I hit on um, a book by B. David Napier, who was an Old Testament scholar at uh, Yale. I didn't know what that meant at the time, but I discovered JEDP. <laughs> and I thought, uh, I don't know what to make of this. And then I read a book by Nels F.S. Foray, who was an early Swedish Londensian theologian and taught at Carrot. And he, it was called, the sun and the umbrella, and the argument was that religion probably hides God as much as reveals God. It was a kind of takeoff on Plato's cave, and uh, I, uh, I thought that's probably right, so I'm going to give it up. But I was committed to uh, going to college. No one in my family had ever gone to college, so I, uh, uh, I went to Southwestern University in Georgetown, Texas. And I was the uh, I was the philosophy major at Southwestern, <laughs> and uh, I had a wonderful course where we read cultural history with the primaries. And I thought after uh, some time that I wasn't smart enough to be an atheist, mm -hmm. so I would go to seminary to discover to try to find out if the stuff was true, but. But I've become convinced that one of the decisive issues uh, about the truthfulness of what we say we believe as Christians was the destruction of the Jews and the Christian complicity with that. Hmm. And um, I thought it would be the Protestant liberals that would have stood against the Nazis. It turned out to be Barton Bonhoeffer. So I read Barton Bonhoeffer. And the rest is history. <laughs> oh, yeah. So Barton Bonhoeffer, they, they were early influences in your theological journey. I mean, I, mean, I know they still are, but. I, no, no, yeah. they, my first year in seminary, I read. Was he was he widely read in seminaries the time you oh. went to seminary? Okay. Oh. As a matter of fact, Bart has never been widely read. Princeton Theological Seminary has a, a wonderful collection of people uh, who are part scholars. Okay. Uh, I'm not a Bart scholar myself, so I I've read widely in his work. Yeah, but I'm not a McCormack reader. Yeah, but um, Bart was read at Yale because at upon Fry. And oh right, yeah, yeah. That was, uh, that was very important because most readers of Bart thought he was some kind of crazy uh, fundamentalist. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is in my seminary journey, uh, the name Karl Barth was associated with uh, being liberal. He he was he was the name under the group of liberal scholars. So I just thought Karl Barth was some liberal theologian until actually, um, oh, when I went to Aberdeen University, John Webster was there, another Bardian scholar. So a lot of a lot of students studying Barth, and they looked at me funny when I'm like, oh, so you're studying that liberal guy? You know, they're like, um. No, we're studying Karl Barth. Like he's like a, <laughs> he wasn't too privy with uh, liberals. And then so anyway, I I got my view of Barth kind of corrected. And um, 
dabbled in bar probably a lot less than 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 you have. Aberdeen was a great place for you to be. It, you know, especially then, uh, we had Francis Watson, who was, you know, New Testament scholar, but also very much integrated biblical studies with theology, which I know you're, 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 um, you've done the same. And um, uh, I studied under Simon Gathergold. Webster was there. Um, was Brian Brock there? Brian just came in. Brian's, uh, yeah, I've kept up with him um, a little bit over the years. He's been on the podcast as well, actually. He's a wonderful thinker and great guy. Yeah, he's doing great work in in disability theology, and um, let's. Uh, I mean, there's so many books we can talk about. Um, I, the Resident Aliens is is I I think still your most widely sold book, as far as I know from the internet at least. But what what um what led you and and William to uh, write this book? Is there is, tell us the backstory of of why you wanted to write this book? Well, uh, we had Will and I had not known one another until we both ended up at New we had corresponded and in conversation, we discovered we had a lot of shared convictions that we arrived at independent of one another. And we wrote a little, a little uh, article for the Christian Century called Embarrassed by God. And we said that people were afraid that Protestantism was uh, dying out and uh, we uh, suggested that that may well be the case because um, most people try to keep Christianity going, whether God exists or not. <laughs> and and uh, we, uh, we thought that underneath fundamental projects of liberal Christianity was uh, a denial of the reality of God. Therefore, most Christian, most modern Christian theology was more of atheism. We didn't think that that was a peculiarly informative thing to say because it was so obviously true. But uh, uh, if people uh, just got a, a raft of letters, protests going into the Christian century. So we decided why don't we write a book? <laughs> and so uh, we started it in terms of having discussions with one another about uh, how to organize it, what should be in each chapter. I dictated each chapter in terms of getting it um, first in text, and then it was transcribed, and then Will would write over it, and then I would write over what Will wrote over. And Will, of course, is uh, uh, just a master of example, and the examples really pull the argument of the book along. So that's uh, yeah how the book happened. I mean, just from a literary perspective, the book is un unique in, many, in many ways, but particularly in having just robust thought. It's provocative. It's 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 nuanced. Um, it's obviously built on much research, but it's it's so fluidly written. But then, yeah, you weave in examples and stuff, and and so it's almost like you know, is this an academic book? Is it a, is it a popular level book? And it's like it just kind of has its own category, which I just so appreciated. Um, on the cover, it says, you know, life in the Christian colony. And 
I think it's in, I think you guys coined this term, you know, the church is like a, a colony of heaven on earth and, and, and there's variations of, can you unpack what that, what you mean by that? Um, for people that maybe aren't familiar with that concept, because that, that kind of draw that kind of is an underlying theme in, in the entire book, Life in the Christian Colony. Well, originally, we were, Will wanted to call it the colony. It wasn't clear that that would uh, tell people much about the book. And so my, my wife was reading the text of, of, of it, a phrase in it, resident alien. Mm-hmm. And she said, why don't you call it resonating? <laughs> we said, that's a, that's a great suggestion. So we sent the book to Abington. And Abington came back and said, oh, we want to publish the book, it's, but we don't like the title. And we said, why? And they said, well, people will think it's about wetbacks coming over from Mexico. And we said, great. That's what we want. <laughs> <laughs> and the Christians are... are 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 on the move for, for and yeah. so that's how the kind of yeah fundamental perspective and of course one of the fundamental arguments of the book is that uh, we've been in a Christendom context particularly in, in in America where mainstream Protestantism has thought it should be supported by uh, the fundamental social and political developments that though we don't say we are an established church, in effect, we admit. And that's exactly the reason why, why we're in such trouble that how for Christians to reclaim the fundamental convictions and practices that make us odd people in this society is exactly what the book is trying to do, what mainstream Protestantism has been built on. And this is evangelical Protestantism too, uh, is Christianity is pretty much what anyone would believe just with a little a little nudge about, well, we have certain kinds of beliefs, maybe about Jesus or something like that, but we're not sure how. The, what difference that makes for what it means to be America. Uh, my kind of way of putting it is uh, we underwrite a story of freedom hmm. that says what we want is produce people in modernity that believe they should have no story except the story they chose when they had no story. And if you uh, don't believe uh, believe that is your story. Uh, I can illustrate it this way. Uh, do you think you ought to be held responsible for decisions you made when you didn't know what you were doing? Most people think you underwrite that you shouldn't be held responsible for decisions you made when you didn't know what you were doing. You get to choose your own story. Not only uh, difficulty. With that, of course, is it makes marriage unintelligible. <laughs> you could know what they were doing when they when uh, they promised lifelong monogamous fidelity. So you certainly don't know what you're doing when you have children. So exactly what it means to be a Christian is to challenge the, 
fundamental convictions that are so associated with modernity, instantiated in the uh, institutions of America. Mm -hmm. We're free in a way that makes um, it intelligible for us to choose who we will be. Now, the, the problem with the story that you have no story except the story you chose when you had no story, you didn't choose that story. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but that, you, that keeps, that keeps hidden from us. We keep that hidden from ourselves by assuming that uh, we get to make Christianity up if we want to be Christians at all. Christianity is not a faith that you get to make up. It's what you receive. So there is a fundamental tension between what it means to be Christian as people formed by a reality, God, that we didn't get to make up. And that continues to be a tension with, between Christianity and the American project. Yeah. Yeah. Well, along those lines, you know, one of the things I appreciated in the book, and I guess let me, let me back up. I mean, it's, I, I, what I appreciated is your consistency in situating this Christian colony against the backdrop of, of, for lack of better terms, empire. Um, you know, it's easy to find books written from the perspective of the Christian right, kind of criticizing the left, and then from the Christian left criticizing the right. But, you know, your book sat right in the middle, not even middle, it just sat in a different world um, where you, I think, very consistently were critical of all forms of um, allegiances to Babylon's politic, you know. Um, is that, is that, would that be an accurate description yeah can you unpack maybe the ecclesiological um underpinnings of that like what was driving because I, I would imagine in your educational environment you, it's easy to find again for lack of better terms you know more left left-wing christians but yeah that 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 must have been a provocative uh point because you're really consistent in that it is uh, I, I hope it is an intelligible uh, argument the first task of the church is to be the church, not as a matter of fact, to make the world work. The first task for Christians is um, to be the witness to God's character of making us a people capable of worshiping God. Because that's, that's quite an achievement to worship that is the God of Jesus Christ, and that so, so the world cannot know it is the world unless there is a church that is an alternative to the world. Hmm. So Christians, for example, are called to nonviolence in a world of violence because that's what Jesus has made possible through the calling of us into a 
relation with the people of Israel called Jews that have learned to live in the world as Jesus wants us to live in the world, that is, without an army. Mm-hmm. So Christians are an alternative in a way that is quite a surprise for most Christians mm-hmm. in the world in which we find ourselves. Yeah, you. I mean, you quoted, I had this quote written out on page 38. You say, we argue that the political task of the church is to be the church rather than transform the world. Uh, it was just, I mean, you, you summed, summed up that phrase. That does seem to be a one of the more um, provocative and yet important statements in, in, the, um, in the book. You do go on to say, this doesn't mean, I think on page 47, um, that the church can participate in secular movements against war, against hunger, against other forms of inhumanity, but it sees this as part of its necessary proclamatory action. Can you, I mean, this is the thing with the book and why I wanted to talk to you, because every statement you have in this book is so, there's so much there, so much to to unpack. I mean, can you unpack that? (laughs) I I think um, we're, I say, we had no way to know uh, that we could anticipate the development of Donald Trump <laughs> as and Christian uh, Christian support of someone like Donald Trump as part of the developments of Christianity placed within modernity in a way that makes us support nationalism that is antithetical to the Catholic character of the church. And Christians kill Christians in the name of national uh, unity. We're committing suicide. So how to help us reclaim a Catholic sense of the church in a way that we discover stories that shape us that we didn't know that were integral to what it means to be Christian today is part of our ongoing task. So you don't get to make up your mind how the condition comes down to you. And of course, uh, it comes down to you to witness of people of holiness that we don't know where they came from other than God is great and has uh, pulled certain people into uh, the life of Jesus in a way that makes us uh, aware of what an extraordinary thing it is Mm -hmm. that we worship the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as uh, central to making sense of our lives as Christians.
This episode is sponsored by Faithful Counseling. I'm so excited to let you know about this awesome organization. Faithful Counseling is a Christian-based online counseling center filled with over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states. Look, God is always there for us, but sometimes things in this life can feel downright overwhelming. And it can be really beneficial for your mental, spiritual, and physical well-being to talk to a professional counselor. Faithful Counseling is safe and private. You can get help on your own time at your own pace. Uh, the professional counselors, they specialize in things like depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, crisis of faith, trauma, anger, family conflicts, uh, grief, and self-esteem. And everything you share is confidential. And if you're not happy with the counselor you have for any reason, you can request a new one at no additional charge. And I love that the communication with your counselor is super flexible. I mean, you, you can text them, you can chat with them on the phone, you can connect via video, and financial aid is available. So if you want to get started, go to faithfulcounseling.com forward slash theology, and Theology and Raw listeners will receive 10% off your first month. Okay, so that's faithfulcounseling.com forward slash theology. Hello, friends. Registration is now open for Exiles and Babylon Conference, and I cannot wait for this conference. Here's a few topics that we're going to wrestle with. The future of the church, disability in the church, multi-ethnic perspectives on American Christianity, and a conversational debate on the problem of evil and suffering. We have Eugene Cho, Elise Fitzpatrick, Matt Chandler, Michelle Sanchez, Justin Gibney, Devin Stalamar, Hardwick, the list goes on and on. Joey Dodson's going to be there. Um, Greg Boyd and Clay Jones, are, they're going to be engaging in this conversational debate on the problem of evil and suffering. And of course, we have to have Ellie Bonilla and Street Hymns back by popular demand. And Tanika Wyatt and Evan Wickham will be leading our multi-ethnic worship again. We're also adding a pre-conference this year. So we're going to do a, um, an in-depth scholarly conversation on the question of women in ministry featuring two scholars on each side of the issue. So uh, Drs. Gary Bashirs and Sydney Park are on the complementarian side and Drs. Cynthia Long-Westfall and Philip Payne on the EGAL side. So March 23rd to 25th, 2023 here in Boise, Idaho. We sold out last year and we'll probably sell this year again. Uh, so if you want to come, if you want to come live, then I would register sooner than later. And you can always attend virtually if you can't make it out to Boise in person. So all the info is at theologyintheraw.com. That's theologyintheraw.com. Since you brought up Donald Trump, um, I, I, you know, one of the questions I had written down was what, what, what is your, um, your take on the American evangelical church as a whole um, since 2016, we've been through a lot. We've been through the election of Donald Trump, large Christian support. Now I don't, you know, some people, I think that this is where I, I appreciate your theology because I don't think the answer against Trump is Hillary Clinton. Like I don't, you know, I think, I think that there's deeper ecclesiological problems with even yeah, what's going on there? But the pandemic hit. Um, the church had interesting responses there. Like, like, are you um, <laughs> hopeful or discouraged after seeing the church's discipleship over the last, say, five or six years? Like, is this surprising, or is it kind of like, or not? I guess. I I think I'm not in despair because of Trump. I'm in despair <laughs> for that. <laughs> because uh, I think uh, the formations of Christians in, a, in Western society uh, is continually so 
inadequate, the formation being that we are any of being shaped by community in a way that um, that community takes priority in terms of everything that I do. One of the problems with evangelical Christianity, for example, is they have the New Testament and now. And the Christian tradition across time is fairly fundamentally lost. And so individuals get to experience something, which is usually their own narcissism, um, in a way that you lose the communal character of what it means to be part of a people who make it possible for us to take risks that otherwise we could not take. The kind of individualism that shapes so many people that consider themselves Christians, good people, is often, I have an experience with God, which I go to church to have expressed. Mm. But at the heart of resident aliens is without the church, there's no salvation at all. <laughs> so it's not me and God. It's that I have been made part of God's promised people that give me a way to go on in a world that's deeply antithetical to Christianity. I have a pastoral question for you, because I get this a lot. What do you say to somebody, and I might even put myself in this category, that reads Resident Aliens, that very much agrees with the ecclesiological vision, and that when, when they look around at individual churches, it's really hard, if not impossible, or just let's just say it's hard to find a church that is even coming close to trying to live out this community as a Christian colony, a colony of heaven on earth, like... I, I mean, is that, I, I think some of the, one of the critiques of the book was that, you know, well, this is a great idealistic vision, Stanley, right? But where does this exist? And, you know, um, what do you say to somebody that's like, I would love to go to a church that has even a glimpse of this kind of desire to live out this community of God's people rather than collecting a bunch of individuals with maybe really good experiences, but still it's just kind of a collection of individual experiences. I say we're all congregationalists today. It's not necessarily the ideal way for Christians to be because congregations need to be tied to other congregations so that when we when you move from Aberdeen to Boise you would have some conviction that would give you the confidence that you are worshiping the same God you worshiped in Aberdeen when you go to Boise and so what is the relation between congregations for the formation of a people who are genuinely Catholic? Hmm. And that means that they can't kill one another because you can't kill uh, and be uh, a follower of Christ. So you look for a congregation today that will at least... Uh, sustain you in everyday living that 
gospel promises. So I um, I'm, I go to Holy Family Episcopal Church in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I think it's a wonderful church, and in particular um, embodies the rich liturgy that shapes our lives as Christians. Worship of God is of God, namely. It is the God who comes as Holy Spirit, shaping lives that I find are remarkable because I depend as a Christian on lives that are more significant than mine. Do you think do you think size of the church matters? Like, do you have any opinions on how big or small a church ideally should be before it loses its discipleship vision? Size oftentimes makes uh, a big difference, but I don't think you can anticipate what difference. I mean, a cathedral means that you can be part of a people in which. You are not known, and you do not know many of the people, but you are you are sharing a feast with them in a way that their lives make a difference to your life. This takes time. The, the Anabaptist course, which I have deep sympathy with, on the whole, are some very small congregations in which you get mutual correction as a possibility. But I don't think smallness is a form of faithfulness necessarily. Mm -hmm. So so what would you say to somebody that said, well, I'm a Christian, I just, I, but I, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church and, and I don't need an institution to um, live out my faith. You know, the kind of like more um, de-churched or anti-church Christian can you be a Christian and not be part of the church? No. Uh, what it means to be part of the church may be negotiated in terms of different ways that that can take. But there is no being Christian without church. Or that same person might say, well, I do have community. When, when they say I'm, I'm a Christian but not part of the church, I think they're speaking about I'm speaking anecdotally here. People, you know, people I've heard say that. Um, I think they're talking about a specific form of what they would call the institutionalized, typically evangelical mainstream church that's oriented around maybe Sunday morning services that are maybe more performative. Gotta have a band now. I, I'll tell you the truth. I honestly don't understand why people go to Joel Osteen's church. I just don't get it. If you want entertainment, television does a better job. So why are you going uh, to that church unless somehow you were raised thinking that you need some little dollar of Christianity and Joel gives you a little, at least says he's a Christian, but it's hard to see how he relates to any of the tradition of, of the church over time. So I, I just don't get it. I think that the numbers that that kind of Christianity attract will be there for 20 years. But 
the children of the people that go to Joel Osteen's church won't go. <laughs> I think they it, I think that's increasingly clear because they recognize parody when they see it and they're not, they see no reason to follow through on that. I know, I know we um we only have a few more minutes left. I want to be respectful of your time. And I've got, I, you know, I sent out a question on Twitter. I said, hey, I'm about to record with Stanley Harawas. Does anybody have any questions you want me to ask him? And I've got about 50 questions that came in, so we can't get through them all. I am curious. I just glanced at this one. Um, have you changed your mind, opinion, or position on any theological doctrine over the last several decades? I, I assume that. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I may have, but uh, it's more uh, growing, more um, articulate about certain aspects of the faith that I've had the opportunity. And I mean, it's been wonderful. Uh, Christians have given me the opportunity to do nothing but read books and then to, to write and so I've learned a good deal that way. I think one of the things to be a theologian is you very early have to recognize that God is a mystery. You must always stand in awe. And I hope that's deepened in my life mm. over, uh, over time. Mm -hmm. God is not to be played with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit name a reality that I hope I become more articulate about over the time I've had to think about these matters and to write. I, I do have a question, and if you don't want to respond to it, I'm I'm perfectly fine with that. You you you, I've been wanting to ask you this actually for years. I'm surprised I didn't lead with this, but um, you knew John Howard Yoder, right? I mean, personally. Oh, very much. Yeah. Do you have? I mean. Yeah, it's a kick in the gut. Between that and Jean Vanier, who mm. founder of Arch, uh, it's just been devastating to the reality. Yeah. Uh, that deep betrayals of women. Yeah. I still, I've learned it a uh, hell of a lot from John Howard Yoder, but uh, I think uh, it will remain to be seen what future of his life is going to be for us. Is it okay? I mean, I get this question a lot too. What do we do with the politics of Jesus and his other many, he's got so many other works that are way lesser well-known that are just brilliant pieces of work. Do we read those differently now that we know that he had this, you know, history of abuse? I mean, or does that change how we learn from him? Should we throw away our Yoda books or do we say, hey, this is, you know. I gave away my books recently to okay. the Theological Book Network. Uh, and they're in Malaysia now. I, I had to think very hard whether I would keep my Yoda or not. I had a lot of John. And I let it go. It will be read in Malaysia. So it's going to make a lot of difference where it's read and how it's read. 
but yeah, I think it will need it will continue to need to be written. And you didn't have any suspicion when you knew him. I mean, it was it really came out of nowhere. Came out of nowhere. Um, yeah, I mean, us evangelicals have had a few in in our journey um, that are similar to that. We've had some that you know, you look back, you're kind of like, well can't say I'm terribly surprised and others it was like you said a kick in the gut like I did not see that um that coming so um Stanley I want to be sensitive to your time and I can't thank you enough for giving us a um uh some of your time and, and speaking from years and decades of of wisdom so uh, many blessings on your future work are you working on any current projects right now that you can talk about <laughs> I've been writing um, a piece called uh, retractions where I uh, which is a biography of my books. So I'm going through trying to remember what I wrote when and why and how the content of that book relates to the content of the other book that comes. Yeah. Oh, that's so, awesome. Yeah. Uh, I'm doing that for my own amusement. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Stanley. Many blessings on your life and ministry. Appreciate you. I wish you well. You take care. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.